Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Come on back in and grab a seat. Uh, welcome today. For those who we haven't had a chance to meet in person, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors at Commons, but I spend most of my time over at the Kensington Parish. It was a lot of fun to get invited over here uh, once in a while to Inglewood. And I'll actually be back later in the summer, so we're looking forward to that as well. Uh, particularly because my son has a lot of fun here. There's so many kids on this side. However, last week, Scott launched us into the summer series with a look at Psalm 13. Today, I get to follow that up by looking at Psalm 1. And so all summer, we're moving through the Psalms. We've got a number of different voices coming in and out. And the Psalms are this beautiful collection of poetry that both the Jewish and the Christian traditions have found great comfort in over the millennia. They sweep through all different kinds of emotions and postures. And I think one of the things that we sometimes miss out on in our contemporary expressions of church is that willingness of the Psalms to name some of the struggles that we often want to push aside and ignore. Uh, The Psalms will call God a liar. They will call God unjust and aloof. Uh, The writers have no problem calling on God to do some really wicked things on their behalf because the Psalms have some incredibly terrible theology and that's part of what's so beautiful about them, that God isn't afraid of our bad ideas. And in fact, finding space to give voice to some of our worst misconceptions is part of how we disabuse ourselves of them. I have a five, almost six-year-old that's living in my house these days, and part of what I'm learning is that when he gets on a rant, interrupting him to correct him in the moment is not nearly as helpful as I thought that would be. And so sometimes the most gracious, the most loving, the most helpful thing that I can offer as a parent is actually just to sit and to listen and to wait until he has said what he needs to say. So that after I have listened, then we can come back and we can talk and we can begin to heal what was wrong in the first place. And as I read through the Psalms, they often feel like that to me and that's incredibly comforting for me. Now today, We're actually gonna move to Psalm 1, where all of this begins. But before we begin, we need to ground ourselves, once again, a little bit in some of the background to the Psalms. If you open your Bible, uh, you will find the Psalms in about the middle of the book. And there are likely 150 of them in your Bible. I say likely, because if you happen to be a Greek-speaking Jewish person here today, then you get a 151st bonus psalm that was present in the Septuagint. And if today you come from the Middle East and you use a Syriac Bible, then you will get a bonus of Psalm 152 all the way through to 155, so lucky for you. And just to make things even more complicated, if you happen to be using a standard Hebrew Bible, then you will have the same 150 Psalms that we do, but they will be numbered differently. And this is something that every first year Hebrew student in our church inevitably emails me about at some point in their first semester. 
They're looking up a psalm in Hebrew and the translation makes no sense to them and that's because even though the psalms themselves are the same, they're numbered differently and they're actually reading the wrong psalm. And without getting into too much detail here, uh, this comes from making different decisions about where one psalm ends and another one begins. Uh, You can imagine that when you have one big long scroll of poetry with no punctuation, and no signals to mark the transitions, this can be a little bit confusing, and so different people made different choices. But that's kind of the beauty of the Psalms. They belong to the community. Of course, someone wrote them, and at some point along the way, an author sat down and poured their heart out, and we're gonna do our work this summer to uncover what's buried beneath these words and try to understand some of the depth of meaning that the authors invested in them. But this is what any good poetry really does. It becomes the property, the shared property of the community. It's why rabbis say, you never do theology based on the Psalms because the Psalms are never about God as much as they were always about us. That doesn't mean God isn't in there, it doesn't mean these words aren't inspired, it simply means that what we are reading when we read the Psalms is divine poetry inspired by spirit to speak to the experience of humanity before the divine. But today is Psalm one. So let's read it before we pray. It says this, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Psalm one, let's pray. God of song and singing, of poetry and praise, would we learn to make the Psalms of your scriptures ours today? Might they become our words? Might they give voice to our hurts? Might they express our joy? And would they bring us more closely into your presence this morning? Even as this language is sometimes unfamiliar to us, we pray that your spirit would be present to our reading and that you might help us to see ourselves hidden in these songs. If our spirits are dry and need to be refreshed, if our minds dulled and in need of wisdom, if our bodies in pain and in need of healing, may we come to find each of these moments met and renewed as we engage the poetry of your people. Speak life and truth and remind us that beauty really can change the world in the strong name of the risen Christ we pray, amen. Okay, 
So today is Psalm 1, and we need to cover contrasting parallels, compounding parallels, and chiastic parallels, and end on how God is always for you. But to do that well, we have to remember this, that this is poetry we're looking at this summer. And I don't know about you, but I am no poet. I love words and how we blend them. And I do spend a lot of time crafting my words and how I speak after all. But I also do remember studying poetry in public school and being sort of unimpressed with it all. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? It doesn't even rhyme. I mean, come on, what's going on here? And why is tiger spelt with a Y? What kind of a hipster wrote this poem? But then as I got a bit older, I actually started reading more poetry for myself. And I kind of fell in love with certain poets. Uh, Wendell Berry, one of my favorites though, is uh, Billy Collins. You are the crystal goblet and the wine. You are the dew on the morning grass and the burning wheel of the sun. You are the white apron of the baker and the marsh birds suddenly in flight. However, you are not the wind in the orchard or the plums on the counter or the house of cards and you are certainly not the pine-scented air. There is just no way that you are the pine-scented air. It is possible that you are the fish under the bridge and maybe even the pigeon on the general's head, but you are not even close to being the field of cornflowers at dusk. A quick look in the mirror will show that you are neither the boots in the corner nor the boat asleep in the boathouse, but it might interest you to know, speaking of the plentiful imagery of the world, that I am the sound of rain on the roof. And come on, I don't even know what that's about, but that is just a great poem, isn't it? It's captivating. By the way, both of those poems continue on far past what I read, Tiger by William Blake, The Litany by Billy Collins, you should read them both. But there is this really interesting tension where analyzing poetry can sometimes rob it of its beauty and yet at the same time, any good poem, there are things going on between the words that we miss if we don't slow down for them. And Psalm 1 is no different. Now this poem has six verses that are broken into four stanzas, and there are a number of different poetic devices that are employed throughout. And we're gonna take it piece by piece this morning. So, our first stanza is verses one and two in your Bible. It reads this, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. Now already, in this opening stanza, there are a few distinct Hebrew things happening here. Because in Hebrew poetry, the primary structural feature is what we call parallelism. Now there are rhymes and there are rhythms in Hebrew poetry, and there are actually some in this poem, but it gets very difficult to translate ideas faithfully and make them still rhyme in a different language, you can imagine. And so it's usually the thematic parallelism that wins out when we move Psalms into English, and that's okay, because the primary feature of Hebrew poetry is this idea we call parallelism. 
And this is where you say something, and then you say it again. Now, there's all kinds of different forms of this. And we're gonna look at three different types of parallelism in just this poem. But the basic structure of Hebrew poetry is couplets that play off of each other. And here you can see that basic structure of how I laid things out on the screen. Blessed is the one who does not follow the way of the wicked. Blessed is the one who delights in the way of the Lord. So for this writer, these two ideas are essentially the same thing. That might not sound all that dramatic just yet, but listen to what that parallel is saying to us. It's telling us that the way of God is not ascetic, it is joyful. Now, that's not aesthetic or ecstatic, it's ascetic and there's a very big difference. Ascetic is having to do with severe self-discipline or punishment characterized by abstention and humorlessness. And by paralleling these two ideas, what the writer is saying right off the bat is that not walking in the way of the wicked, not standing with sinners, not sitting in the company of mockers is not primarily about all the things we don't do. It's actually all about where we choose to find our joy in the world. And that's important. I was sitting with someone about a week ago over coffee and they were recounting to me all of the choices that they wished they could take back and mistakes that they had made. And that's okay. Uh, We all have things that we would do differently in hindsight and things we see differently today and that's fine. But we also have to remember that frustration over who we were won't actually help us become who we want to be. Look, it's good to be introspective. It's healthy to take stock. But part of what the poet is reminding us of here is that you're going to need more than regret to move you forward. Willpower isn't enough. You need some source of joy on the other side. We all need something that we're moving toward, not just things that we're leaving behind. In fact, I think part of what the poet is saying is that avoiding wickedness only ever works when it's matched by an investment in something that's beautiful. I happen to think that sometimes a lot of our religious effort is far too caught up in avoiding evil instead of actually embracing the goodness that actually changes us. But there's more here as well. Is look at the verbs in this passage. Blessed is the one who does not walk or stand or sit, but instead blessed is the one who delights and meditates. And so even while we've got this contrasting parallel, between what it means to pursue good or evil, you've also got this straight line intensification that's happening with the verbs that are linking this section together. Walk, stand, sit, delight, meditate. Now, verbs are always important in any language. Obviously, they convey the movement in the story. So a good rule with any poem is to look at the verbs and think about what they're saying there. 
But in biblical Hebrew, verbs are really important because the language is so incredibly limited. A working vocabulary of biblical Hebrew has less than 1,000 root words. And that's because the language is very concrete and very visual. So in Hebrew, if you are angry, your nose is red. Or if your spirit leaves you, your throat closes up. And so when you try to picture someone who walks and then stands and then sits with someone, who delights in them and meditates on their words, what's being described here is the progression of a relationship. You can imagine, uh, you meet someone, you're walking along one of the paths here in the city, and you strike up a conversation, and you find yourself really engrossed in it, and you reach the point where your paths are set to diverge, but decide to stop and talk for a while. Eventually, you choose to go find a coffee shop, and you sit, and you keep talking, and you have this great time, and you find yourself thinking about what they said that night as you go to bed. And I know that sounds like a montage from a rom-com starring Gwyneth Paltrow, but you kind of get the idea, right? This language of Hebrew is inherently visual. It's how they speak. And that's exactly what this original audience is kind of picturing in their minds as they read this poem. Uh, Let me go to John Golden Gay's translation of this stanza. I think he really does a great job bringing the scene across. He says, the blessings of someone who has not walked in the counsel of the faithless, or stood along the way of the wrongdoer, or lived in the settlement of the arrogant, is his delight in Yahweh's instruction. He murmurs about it day and night. So he's being a little less strictly literal here, but I actually think he's done a better job in making it harder for us to miss the intent of the poet. He makes it flow from the first half right into the second half, this sort of intensifying relationship. And what's beautiful about that in the context of this parallel is that that movement works both ways. It's progressive. None of us ever end up living in the settlement of the arrogant or none of us ever find ourselves fully invested in the goodness of God because of one choice. What matters is a lifetime of small steps. Uh, Eugene Peterson wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That book was actually about the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, Those are the Psalms numbered 120 to 134 in your Bible, but the title applies just as easily to this Psalm. Because if you find yourself in a place that you don't want to be, surrounded by people that aren't helping you, living in the settlement of the arrogant, it's important to realize you actually didn't get there by mistake. Now, I don't mean you got there intentionally. Uh, Rarely do any of us ever end up somewhere we didn't want to be purposefully. What I mean is that wherever you are, you got there through a long series of choices. You walked, you stood, you sat, you meditated. I'm noticing here, my notes actually say medicated. That's a typo, but it's possibly true as well. What that means is that you got through a series of choices to where you are now, and you get out of there through the same kind of series of choices. Life 
is about compound interest. And I'm not talking about bank accounts, I'm talking about the fact that your choices pay dividends somewhere down the line. And often, the way that you turn things around, the way that you make change in your life is not particularly dramatic. It's actually very subtle and it's fragile and it's small, but it builds into something remarkable over time. Uh, Sometimes I think we have this image of our lives drawn in these big sweeping gestures, but the truth is life is a lot more like this poem. It's a long series of small steps in the same direction. So here's my advice, you wanna make some changes? You want to forgive someone, you want to switch careers, you want to be more generous, you want to tell a different story about yourself, start small, celebrate wins, stick with it, and know where it is that you're heading. Because you ended up here after a series of choices and you will get there at the end of another series if you can be patient and kind and generous enough with yourself along the way. Small steps add up. And right now, maybe you're not ready to delight and meditate, and that's okay. Because walking and standing and sitting come first, and your direction where you're pointed is always going to be more important than your position where you are right now. Now, that's the first stanza. The second says this, that person, that we've just been introduced to. Uh, They are like a tree planted by streams of water, a tree which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. And again, you can see that parallel structure, right? Although this time it's much more straightforward. The second half is simply a restatement of the first half whose leaf does not wither because they are planted by a stream. Whatever they do prospers because they produce fruit in season. But again, you can notice that intensification that's happening in the verbs of the poem. You've gone from walking to standing to sitting to delighting and meditating and now being planted. There's even this neat little thing going on in the Hebrew here that links this all together. Uh, The poet is switching up the pronouns in a weird way. In Hebrew, what it says here is literally, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water. He yields his fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. So it's kind of subtle, but you basically have the poet switching back and forth between pronouns that refer to the tree as a simile and pronouns that refer directly to the person who's the subject of the poem. And it's kind of awkward, but it's this neat linkage that we miss when we clean up the grammar to make it make more sense in English. Except it's not a mistake. The writer's being very intentional here to make sure you get what he's saying. However, being planted. Um, That might not seem like a big deal, but remember we're talking about the Middle East here. Uh, This is not an area where trees grow willy-nilly. This is a semi-arid climate, and everyone knows that trees, especially fruit trees, do not grow uncultivated in this region. And again, the point of the poem is intentionality. 
It's the idea that good things take work and good work is worth the effort if we stick with it. So, this poem is beautiful, it's meant to draw us in, it uses a bunch of these different Hebrew poetry techniques, but really this poem is meant to form us and shape us, it wants to point us in a healthy direction and that's why this poem is known as a wisdom psalm. Now, Peter Craigie was a British scholar who actually taught most of his career here in Calgary at the university and he once wrote that this psalm was probably not composed for use in formal worship or singing but rather as a literary and poetic composition expressing with remarkable clarity the category of wisdom literature. Now, that's great. But you may be looking at your watch and realizing that we are exactly now one half of the way through Psalm 1 and we're almost out of time. I wish I had another half hour to talk about the second half in detail, but here's the thing. We already have now in this room all the tools to see what's going on in the second half of the poem. Because the second half of Psalm 1 is the final example of parallelism we see in this poem. And that's called a chiastic parallel. Uh, verses one and two, we have an example of a contrasting parallel. The way of the wicked set against the way of the Lord. In verse three, we have an example of a compounding parallel, a tree that bears fruit, a tree that does not wither. Well, the second half of Psalm one is an example of a chiastic parallel, and this is where the second half of the poem tells the same story, but it does it backwards. Looks like this. Stanza A is verse one and two about the different paths we can take. Stanza B is verse three about a well-planted tree. Stanza B2 is verse four where the poet says, not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away, which is the opposite of a rooted tree. And then the final stanza, A2, consisting of the final two verses, five and six, it's a parallel of verses one and two, and it begins with this line, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, which is exactly the opposite of where the poem began in verse one, the blessings of those who do not stand in the way of the wicked. And so you actually have all of the tools now to begin reading some of these psalms and looking for these patterns, and your homework this week is to finish Psalm 1 on your own and look for all of these different ways that these poets are looping back on their ideas and reinforcing their concepts and finding ways to weave these parallels and ideas throughout their imagery. As I said at the start, uh, sometimes there can be that point where analyzing poetry actually kind of robs it of its beauty, but sometimes it's simply knowing the rules that helps us begin to dig up what's been buried in there. However, there is one more thing I wanna talk about before we go, and it's important. Because earlier, when I read this poem, I read it from the NIV translation, and I love the NIV. But I also know that I like to pick on it from time to time. And they've done a really good job with this poem right up until the very end. Because you see, the last line of this poem has been rendered, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. And that is technically fine, but it's also probably misleading. The problem here is that word destruction. 
because the Hebrew word is not destruction, it's the word avad, and that can mean to get lost, to run away, to wander aimlessly, or to perish. And there's an incredibly wide semantic range to the word avad, but generally we do not use the word destruction in English the way that avad means. And that's because in English, destruction tends to carry the idea of something that is external to us. So something destroys us, or someone destroys us, or maybe in this case, God destroys us. And that's actually exactly the opposite of what the writer has in mind here. Remember, you have to look for these parallels. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the wicked, they go on their own, they get lost, they wander, they perish. The idea here is not, it's actually never that God does anything to destroy any of us. In fact, the outcome is precisely because they have wandered away from the God who desperately wants to watch over their steps. And so I much prefer the way that Robert Alter has translated this final line. He says, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked is lost. And again, the NIV translation is fine, You can read that and come away with the understanding that it's the way of the wicked, the path that they've taken that leads them to their ruin. It's just that sometimes I think all of us carry this toxic theology that God is just waiting for us to mess up or slip up. That God is waiting for us to drop the ball so that God can pounce and destroy us if the chance comes up. And that's exactly what the writer wants to disarm here. In fact, it's the whole point of the poem. There's always time to turn around. There's always time to change. There's always time to begin a new path, even if that path begins with small choices that point in a new direction. Because God is always for you. God is always on your side. God is always cheering you on and trusting that there is more in you than even you realize. God always believes that small steps in the right direction are worth celebrating because enough of them will change everything. That's the point of the poem, that God is always for you, always on your side, always cheering you on, even in those small victories. And that should be incredibly encouraging. Let's pray. God, this summer, as we look through the poetry of your people, might we begin to see ourselves buried in these images to see the ways that you are encouraging us and guiding us, speaking to us by your spirit about the ways that we can move this world in the likeness of you. God, for those moments where we realize that we have ended up somewhere we didn't intend to be, through a series of choices we didn't think through, would you remind us that small changes are worth celebrating? that small steps are beautiful and that enough of them in the same direction can change everything about how we see ourselves and the world that surrounds us. God, might you help us really believe that we can become more like you, more gracious, more generous, more peaceful, 
And that that story, as it begins to shape us, inside of us and through us, might actually begin to bleed into all of the encounters that we have around us. And that we can begin to write a new story about a new world shaped by grace and peace. God, would you remind us that you are for us, cheering us on, on our side, believing that we can turn everything around to become the people you imagine us to be. In the strong name of the risen Christ we pray, amen.